0: Frightening, really, in uh, many respects, because of the power and the might uh, and the persona that he is. So that was a scary day. Makes me think, you know, God gave His commands with such power and such force and such drama, and then we can turn around and say, "Oh, this have done away with." Why would He do anything that way? and then turn around and say, ah, forget that, it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But uh, the best we can track and the best we can understand, he did that on the day of Pentecost. So Pentecost is a day to start out with, and that was apparently the first Pentecost after they came out of uh, Mitzrium. So it was established, the Ten Commandments, right there, Uh, They had been established, of course, all the way back with Adam and Eve uh, because sin was the breaking of the law. And once they understood, they had broken the law. They had lied and stolen and so on, committed idolatry, you name it. So the law was known, but it was given in a very dramatic fashion to Israel when they came out of the slavery that they were in. And God wanted them to know in no uncertain terms uh, who he was in what his law really was, while they made golden calves and cavorted uh, cavorted a ways away from the mountain where they wouldn't be so scared. Uh, So they needed to know know in no uncertain terms. And we move forward to the New Testament. We're all familiar with Acts 2, where God gave another great gift to the church, which began on that day officially uh, by a mighty wind, and cloven tongues of fire, and various uh, languages being spoken. The gift of tongues was given, and uh, the miracle of calling of a lot of people began. So it was a very, very dramatic day, and we know from Joel, too, that that was only partial fulfillment because there will be another, at the time of the Day of the Lord, uh, probably with the same kind of pyrotechnics and power uh, that God gives. So, whether that's today or whether that's uh, another year away or whatever, I know it's very, very close, and we shall soon see one way or another. But this is a very, very important day. Let's go back, first of all today, to Leviticus 23, uh, and see the background when God gave his holy days. <coughs> He'd been through the Passover dissertation, and now in verse 9, he spoke to Moses, saying to the children of Israel, When you come into the land which I give you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, then you shall bring a sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest to the priest. Uh, I don't want to get into the dating of it here today. We've done that before, and the technicalities of that, uh, I, I would prefer not to deal with But let's deal with the meaning and the picture, and what this is all about is more important for us to get right at the moment. I think we have the right day, but uh, that is not a a topic for the day. They were to bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. Now, they came in there at the time of the spring harvest, and as soon as they crossed the river, that was their harvest. They didn't have to plant one. It was there already planted for them. All they had to do was do what he said because he had given them that land. So when they crossed in, the land was theirs. The crops were theirs. The fruit was theirs. The rivers were theirs. Everything was theirs. So they could follow this, and it does say there in Joshua that they kept it that year. They didn't have to wait until they had planted a harvest, as some say. Of course, that's starting to get into the technicality, so let's don't go there. But anyway, they were to bring the sheep of the firstfruits and wave the sheep before the Eternal to be accepted for you. On the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So this sheep was to be waved for them. Now, in New Testament understanding, we realize that we are the firstfruits, and that it was waived for us, for any who would have salvation. So this sheep had to be for any unto whom the sacrifice of Christ would ever come. Okay? From Adam and Eve right on through uh, the millennium, all 7,000 years, this has to be waived Otherwise, for those people. Otherwise, Christ's sacrifice is not for them. So it had to be waived during the days of unleavened bread, those seven days, which, whenever they show up in the process of time, are waived for all seven thousand or all seven thousand years or all seven eras. Seven, a day is, is a thousand years, but it did represent them uh, being waived, and it represented Christ being waved for them. I guess would be more correctly the way to say that <clears throat> he was waived, he was killed, he was resurrected for us. So it represented him, but it re- represented him in behalf of us. Uh, and you shall offer that day when you wave the sheep and he lamb without blemish of the first year for a burnt offering to the eternal. And he goes through uh, about the offering itself. Verse 14, you'll either, eat neither bread nor parched corn, nor green airs until the self same day that you have brought an offering to your God that shall be a statute throughout your generations and all your dwellings. So we are to bring an offering before God. Uh, what do we have to offer primarily? I mean, we can offer uh, first fruits of the land. We can offer uh, first fruits of money. But really what we have most to offer is ourselves. And we are to come unblemished. I hope that we prayed for forgiveness this morning (laughs) so that we stand or sit here before God today unblemished in that sense uh, because Christ's sacrifice was a sacrifice for what? A sacrifice for sin. And it is way for us who have been sinners and who are trying to be what we ought to be and as I explained yesterday... God is willing to take that which is blemished, that which has problems, and work with it until it does not have problems. And that process will not be complete until the resurrection, and we are changed and made immortal. Then it will be complete. Up until then, it's certainly incomplete. Uh, and we may not be able to say sitting here today yes i did repent this morning and i am completely without blemish because we'll probably all have some kind of selfish thought or whatever before the day's over and we'll sin again so we can be thankful that he is willing to work with that which is not perfect they were to bring a lamb without blemish and of course that is the picture that we are to have in our mind is of us as lambs without blemish. So we work toward that, and thankfully he is merciful and forgiving and gives us pardon that we don't deserve so that we can work toward that, and hopefully then we become that which God does not impute sin to, that we are living as righteously as we can, we're working at it, and he says, I will not impute sin to you because you are working in the direction that I would have you go. Anyway, you count after that seven Sabbaths to be complete in verse 15. And the day after the seventh Sabbath then is Pentecost. Verse 17, though, with the story itself and the symbolism is what I'm after. You shall bring out of your habitations two waved loaves of two tense deals, they shall be of fine flour; they shall be baked with leaven. they are the first fruits unto the eternal. <laughs> now Christ is the wave sheaf who's waved for us. It is about us, him doing it for us. but here there is a direct connection. We are the first fruits, or these two loaves are the first fruits. Now we know uh, that the first fruits consist of 144,000 individuals ultimately. So what do the two mean? There's been speculation about this and perhaps the best I don't know. It doesn't really say, does it? But perhaps it's those from the Old Testament and those from the New Testament two loaves that are combined together as first fruits. Total of 144,000 ultimately Anyway, that is the symbolism. So when we speak of first fruits and we go to the New Testament and it talks about the first fruits, then the Pentecost becomes what? The day of the first fruits. The day that Christ's sacrifice is waived for all of those who will be first fruits. And if it is Old and New Testament, then it has to be from Adam and Eve, which would include Enoch and anyone righteous in the, before the flood and Noah and those afterward and all those through the millennium that it would be waived for. The uh, eighth day does not apply because all the people who are in the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles or the Great White Throne Judgment, as we call it, had already lived in the first seven days, the first 7,000 years. So that sheaf of Christ was waived for them during the 7,000-year period, and they've already been covered, so it doesn't need to have one cover the eighth day outside the Days of Unleavened Bread. No need for that. It's already covered, taken care of. So, if we be first fruits, which I do believe we are, this is talking to us when we start reading about Pentecost. You'll offer the, with the bread seven lambs without blemish of the first year and one young bullock and two rams for a burnt offering to the eternal and they'll be a sweet savor to the eternal. So those animal sacrifices that were given were given as a sweet savor by the first fruits or for the first fruits. And we have to become a sweet savor to God. He says in Isaiah that Israel, we, the church, have been a stench in his nostrils. And what we are in the process of doing is offering Him the best that we possibly can so that we become a sweet savor in His nostrils. I don't think that can be emphasized too much. You know what you do when you smell something that really smells bad to you? You wrinkle up your face and you turn your head. Do not want to smell that. What did God say in imagery that He has done with us? Turned His head. Couldn't stand the smell coming up from this earth and even of his first fruits. So, he vomited it out. And you know how vomit smells. You turn your face away from that if it's possible as well. So, our job is to change the smell that goes up to God so that it becomes a sweet savor. And we do that through diligent obedience and faith and love and hope and the fruit of his spirit which was given on the day of Pentecost through the first fruits. So the sweet savor here is a very, very important part of why we are here today as first fruits, is that we become something that is acceptable to God's nose. Then you should sacrifice one kid of the goats for a sin offering and two lambs of the first year for a sacrifice of peace offering. So getting rid of sin. And obtaining peace is a very, very important part of any of the sacrifices of God, and they're included here on Pentecost. So we should be seeking to be a sweet savor, to have our sins removed, and to have peace. The priest shall wave them with a bread of the first fruits for a wave offering before the Eternal. With the two lambs, they shall be holy to the Lord for the priests. So, the two loaves, these were leavened loaves, represent the first fruits. And also the two lambs. And he uses, uh, loaves, Christ does in the New Testament to refer to us. And he also uses lambs throughout the Bible as a picture of his people. Christ being the first true lamb of God. So there's a great deal of meaning here for us. And you shall proclaim on the selfsame day that it may be a holy convocation to you, and do no servile work, and this is a statute forever, and all your dwellings throughout your generations. So it's still here. Verse 22 is very interesting, too. And when you reap the harvest of your land, and the spring harvest is what it's talking about here, you shall not make clean riddance of the corners of your field when you reap, neither shall you gather any gleaning of the harvest. You shall leave them to the poor and to the stranger. I am the eternal, your God. So, even though we rejoice in being firstfruits, we are not to forget others. Now, that brings me again to, I mean, uh, Joel 2, verse 32, where he says that uh, any who call upon the name of the Lord when he makes his manifestation uh, on Pentecost, can be called, can be included, 11th hour, as well as those whom he stirs to come to build a temple. So the symbolism here uh, is depicted again in uh, Joel 2, in that final uh, great manifestation, and it also is very much there in Acts 2 where all kinds of people began to come and listen and say, what do we do? Repent and be baptized and follow the right doctrines and so on. So, this is a day of joy and of rejoicing in that God has called us out of the world and given us the truth. I was thinking about this a little just before services, and the, uh, the old song comes to mind that when the saints go marching in, a very lively, very happy, joyful song. I want to be in that number when the saints go marching in. Now, I don't remember, I've heard, I'm sure, who wrote that, but, and it doesn't matter. But I was thinking, you know, somebody read some of these scriptures about the first fruits and about how that fits with the saints marching in. Of course, they're thinking going to heaven when they write the song. But, aren't we? Doesn't Christ come and get us and take us to his Father's throne and marry us there? It's they're thinking that we go to heaven and stay there is where the conversion is. It's just a little twisting of the truth. The truth is when we rise to meet in the air, we're ever with him and we go back to his throne and are married on the sea of glass. So that song isn't that far off. Just a little go to heaven and stay there twist. The joy that is in it is so expressive. It's it's just a really kind of neat song in that way. But it just struck me, the person who wrote that was not a first fruit, more than likely. uh, Did not really understand the plan of God. Just saw the joy that is in being a first fruit and wrote a song about it and rejoiced in it. Now, how exciting is that by somebody who doesn't understand, won't be there, (laughs) and yet takes joy in it? So my thought led to how much more should we take joy in the understanding and the knowledge that we have in having been included in the number of those called to be firstfruits? Our joy should be much greater than that expressed in that song. And that was sung with a lot of vigor and emotion and feeling among those who have carried it on through the years. Uh, a great message there. Truly a great message there. Anyway, we're to think of them, and some will be called at the 11th hour. And I think that this could even go forward into the millennium and the great white throne judgment, in that it isn't just about our salvation. It's about us being there to help others in the millennium and the great white throne judgment that they might not be firstfruits, but they might be children in the kingdom of God with the same joy that we will have received as becoming the bride of Christ. They'll be our kids, and we are to think of them, and we're not to glean everything, but to be sure there's something left over for those who might wish to partake or need and have need. And can you imagine anybody more needful than those coming out of the seven last plagues at the end of this age? They will be tattered and torn and discouraged and frustrated and starved almost to death, uh, having seen their relatives, their friends all die. Out of seven billion, only a hundred million left, remember. So they're going to have seen death and destruction and starvation and cannibalism and everything awful that you can even begin to imagine to have survived that holocaust and come into the millennium. And what a great joy it will be for us to see them survive and we come down with the throne of God and the Father and the Son and take over as kings and priests and mother to serve those, to help them, to nurse them to help them survive and then thrive under the of day in and day out and having such an attitude of service and giving. My my heart my hat has to go out to them. And there are a lot of people in the medical profession that do have that kind of commitment. Uh oh that we could have that kind of commitment to the widow, the orphan, to those in need, and help wherever we can. That kind of love, just on a human level, is beyond what most of us have, perhaps even on a spiritual level. Uh, you know, we're, we're the weak in the base, and We'd rather gossip about and put people down and talk negative and, and uh, be that way than we had loving and kind and helping and serving and cleaning their behinds and wiping the germs out of their mouths. Uh, we have trouble getting the germs out of our own mouths in that sense. Well, I don't want this to become a diatribe against us as hard, mean, nasty people, but uh, when I think of some of those people and what they go through for the sake of others, it's, it's, it's humbling. It's humbling. Anyway, that's uh, the end of that section there in Leviticus 23. Let's go to 2 Kings. This is a very interesting passage. It doesn't have a whole lot to do with first fruits, but it actually has quite a bit to do with what I was just commenting on. Uh, this is the story of Elisha. You remember Elijah had raised the widow's son, uh, and lived with her there and that son for a year and uh, did his thing with the prophets of Baal and the various things that Elijah did. But when Elisha came along as a student of Elijah, he was pretty bold there at the end, just before Elijah disappeared for good. And he's, he says, I don't want much, Elijah, I just want twice what you've had (laughs) that's all just twice what you've had (laughs) sounds kind of vain and egotistical on the surface of it but on the other hand uh, what's wrong with desiring an opportunity to serve and to give and to do so in perhaps a greater way than that which has come before you if God were so to give the gift if it could be said in humility and not in ego. And as I think about it, I think Elisha must have just had an attitude of service and wanting to give and to help and to follow in Elijah's footsteps. And he wanted to be able to do things even greater than Elijah had. Now, that's one reason I think that Elisha is a direct type of Christ there, just as the rubble bell is here at the end. Uh, and as uh, Elijah looked forward to uh, Elisha and John the Baptist looked forward to Christ, those uh, those analogies are there. So, he was given that. I mean, even an axe could float. And it, at a point in time then uh, when Elisha had even died, and uh, there was a soldier killed. We went through that recently. And uh, They were afraid they were going to get in trouble, these guys, for having killed that man. So they saw the quickest tomb they could open. It happened to be Elisha's. And they threw him in there. And as soon as he touched Elisha's bones, he was resurrected. Got him out of trouble. And then he he probably came running out of the tomb. He didn't want to be in there anymore. And uh, so when those other people arrived, nobody had been killed. Amazing. Quite a story, isn't it? Well, here we have the story in Second Kings about this woman uh, who had not had a child, couldn't have a child, and she always wanted Elisha to stop and have eat, or to eat with them and to lodge with them. So he knew any time he went by, the, the door was open, the food would be ready, and he had a place to stay, and that impressed him that somebody would be that willing to give, and serve, and help him, and uh, she hadn't had a child, so he went to God about it, and then she had a child, so the respect for Elisha grew, and I think Elisha's respect for God grew, and everybody was happy here, but then I'm just giving you the story about it, and then the child died. That's when the the arrow goes down. You know, your dauber's down. You're you're upset. You're frustrated. Uh, Where's God? And she even began to question uh, herself. But she had great faith. And she began to saddle up to go find Elisha because that's where the sun had come from in the first place. So she had faith that... This could be fixed. But her husband was not, shall we say, converted. Uh, he didn't have the same level of trust and belief in Elisha that she did, in, in any case. So she said, he says, where are you going? She said, well, I'm going to go meet the prophet. He says, well, it's not a new moon. It's not a Sabbath. It's not, well, what are you going today for? He said, she said, it's going to be all right, honey. She didn't want to explain. I don't, as I recall, I don't think she'd even told him the son was dead yet. I, I don't remember that, and I don't have time to go through it. But anyway, he ran to get help. And Elisha sent a trainee with a staff and said, "Fetch the kid, and nothing happened. Stayed dead. Uh, so he decided to come himself in verse 32 of Second Kings 4. And when Elisha was come into the house, behold, the child was dead and laid upon his bed. He went in, therefore, and shut the door upon the two of them and prayed to the Eternal. And he went up and lay upon the child and put his mouth on his mouth and his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands and stretched himself upon the child and the flesh of the child began to get warm. It was cold. Then he returned and walked in the house to and fro, (laughs) back and forth, thinking, praying, I'm sure. And went up and stretched himself upon him again. And the child sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. So he began to get warm, but he wasn't alive yet. Elisha paced back and forth, and then when laid on the child again, sneezed seven times, opened the eyes. And he called Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. So he called her, and when she was come in unto him, he said, Take up your son. Then she went in and fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground and took up her son and went out. What an emotional feeling there must have been there. Child is dead, and now it's alive. It come to life. And Elisha came again to Gilgal <clears throat> it was with dearth in the land. Now I'm going to make a connection finally here to the first verse. <laughs> But uh, this this was just before it, and uh, this day has such great meaning for the first fruits, who will all be resurrected uh, by Christ at the first resurrection. And this day pictures the first fruits, and they are the only ones that are going to come up at that time. So it fits in well, and so does the story that goes with it. <laughs> So Elisha came again to Gilgal, there was a dearth in the land, and the sons of the prophet were sitting before him. And he said to his servant, set on the great pot, biggest pot you got, I guess, and cook pottage for the sons of the prophets. And one went out into the field, now remember there was a drought, a dearth, he went out into the field to gather plants and found a wild vine. There wasn't a garden, there wasn't any place to get anything, but he found this wild vine. And gathered thereof wild gourds his lap full. Now, I was familiar with wild gourds in West Texas. I've seen a few out here somewhere. I don't remember exactly where. But they had these big vines, and they grew like melon vines or even looked somewhat like cucumber vines. And they had these uh, gourds on them that were probably about, oh, I don't know, three or four inches across. And uh, you didn't eat those. They didn't taste like cantaloupe or watermelon. Uh, They didn't smell good. They didn't taste good. I don't know whether they were the same, but this is the area they were in. And that's the only kind of wild goards I've seen is that kind. So maybe it was the same plants that I grew up around and have seen here, uh, here and there, wherever I've seen them. I know I have, because it was remarkable to me that they were out here as well. So. There were wild gourds, got a lap full, and came and shred them into the pot of stew, for they knew them not. They weren't familiar with this kind of plant. But that's all he could find, apparently. So he cut them up. I've been told to put it in the pot. I'm going to put it in the pot. This is what I found, all right? So they poured out for the men to eat. And it came to pass as that they were eating of the pottage, that they cried out and said, O oh, man of God, there's death in the pot. You're trying to poison us here. We can't eat this stuff. But he said, then bring meal. I don't know how much meal they had. But he cast it into the pot. Now, it doesn't say that they took the gourds out, does it? He says, we can't eat this. This isn't any good. So maybe they had a handful of meal. Remember with the story of Elijah, he came and he says, make me a cake. And she says, I only have enough to make just a little bit for my son and I, and then we're both going to die. And he says, no, you take part of that meal and you go make me a cake. Now, that must have been tough for that lady. She was a young woman. She had this little son this tall. She was a young widow. And it was scary for her. Her life was already very, very difficult. But she did what he said. And what an attitude that is. I would not be a bit surprised that woman was a first fruit someday. Doesn't name them all in Hebrews 11, does it? Because there are many more that I can't name. What faith she had that she would obey what Elijah told her when she was just on the teetering on laying down for the last time and dying of starvation. Now, Elisha does the same thing, in a way. They didn't have much meal, obviously, or they'd have cooked it in the first place. Okay? Why go get wild gourds when you have enough flour there to make a meal? So obviously there wasn't much. So they brought in maybe what they had. Couldn't have been much. He threw it in the pot and said, Pour out for the people that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. So there was a miracle there that that which had been poisoned and apparently would have killed them no longer was poison. They were able to eat it and it was fine. I had a guy one time that I met on the first visit up in Fort Pierce, I think it was, Florida. And uh, my wife and I were together on that visit. And uh, he was a strange-looking guy. I think I've told the story before. But he said, uh, I want you to know right off the bat, I'm a murderer. I just just got out of jail for murder. And he says, would you like some apple juice? And I'm thinking, you're a murderer. You just told me you're a murderer. What's in the apple juice was my first thought. And then my second thought was, Christ says, if you take poison or a snake bites you, you'll be fine. So I said, yeah, I'll have a glass of apple juice. And my wife says, I'll have one too. And I know she was thinking the same thing. We talked about it later. <laughs> I doubt he poisoned it. I'm not saying there was a miracle there. But it was just fishy sounding. And he was an odd duck. There's no doubt about that, it turned out. Anyway, there was no harm in the pot. Now, notice the sequel to this in verse 42. That's a pretty good miracle there, isn't it? I mean, somebody offered you some strychnine and, and a bunch of stuff and said... Uh, throw a little flower in there, and it'll be okay. Yeah, right. There came a man from, where? baal Shaisha I'd hate to live there. And brought the man of God bread of the first fruits. So here he came with an offering of first fruits. And full ears of corn in the husk thereof. So he had brought the first fruits, made the bread, and the corn was still in the husk. And he said, Give to the people that they may eat. And his servant said, What? Should I set this before a hundred men? There must have been only a very small amount, twenty loaves and a few ears of corn that he was carrying. And Obviously, there was not enough there to feed everybody. Have I mentioned that Elisha might have been a direct type of Christ? Do you remember a story about loaves and fishes and another one about loaves somewhere? He says, give to the people that they may eat, for thus says the eternal, they shall eat and shall leave thereof. There will be some left over. What are you so worried about? It doesn't look like there's enough there to feed everybody, but they're going to all eat, and they're all going to get full, and there'll be some left over. It reminds me again. Gather all up this is left over and put it in baskets. They didn't waste it, didn't throw it on the ground. So he set it before them, and they did eat, and there was some left thereof, according to the word of the Eternal. So Elisha did the same miracle here, that Christ did with the loaves and the fishes. Clear back here in the Old Testament. I'd forgotten about that till I was looking up first fruits and, and came to this one and I thought, yeah, that's, that's kind of neat how that fits. But Pentecost is a day about miracles. It's a day about calling people. It's a day about taking care of people. And all of those from all the eras that come under the blood of Christ who can be saved from their sin and from their hurt their trauma, their lack, their needs, their problems. And we represent those people who are able to do that for the world, just as Elisha did here by making it where it wasn't poison and then turning around and giving a group of people food that was well beyond what normally should have fed them. Nehemiah 10 Here we are in the story of building Jerusalem back, and they do mention the holy days in Ezra and in Nehemiah as they came to them as they were doing the work of God. We have a work of God to do here at the end of building the temple and of building Jerusalem back, and the holy days will come during that cycle of building. So here we are in Nehemiah 10. Let's go down to verse uh, 35. Well, they're repenting here. Let's go back uh verse 34. We, we've done wickedly. Neither have our kings, our princes, and priests, nor our fathers kept your law, nor hearkened to your commandments and your testimonies, wherewith you did testify against them. So here's a prayer where they're talking to God about this. Remember Daniel, uh, when he realized the 70 years were up and the temple had to be built? and the prevailing prayer he made about his sins and the sins of the people that were there. And here we have the same thing going on with these people, that they realized that Israel had not been righteous. Same time frame that Daniel prayed that prayer, just a little later, uh, not too much further down the road. For they have not served you in in their kingdom, and in your great goodness that you gave them, And in the large and fat land which you gave before them, neither turned they from their wicked works. There are proverbs about how when you're fat and you have plenty, you forget God. Behold, we are servants this day, and for the land that you gave unto our fathers, to eat the fruit thereof and the good thereof, behold, we are servants in it. And it yields much increase to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. Also they have dominion over our bodies, our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. And because of all this we make a sure covenant and write it, and our princes, Levites, and priests seal to it. Uh, did I miss something here up here about uh when this was? Seems like it was at the first fruits. But anyway, when they came into the land, they were to keep the first, first fruits, and here they had been given the land. They were still in the captivity, as we are in the captivity of Babylon. But we need to be repenting, and we need to be giving the first fruits to God, that is, offering ourselves to Him as His servants. And that's basically what they were doing here, even though my eye misses the specific spot. Let's go then to Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Emmanuel, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That's an interesting statement. I quoted earlier how God says that it would be nice if you would be one of those to whom God imputes no sin. And here it says that there are those who are not under condemnation, or are not condemned because of their relationship to Christ. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Emmanuel has made me free from the law of sin and death. And penalty of that law is what it's talking about. It's not the law that is sin and death. The law, if you break it, causes, is sin and causes death. Paul also called the law holy and just and good. So he's not demeaning the law here. He's saying, you who walk in the Spirit, are in that sense redeemed from the penalty that the law brings of sin. So you're not under condemnation anymore. You are in a a state of grace, of unmerited pardon. And law and grace have to go together. If you don't keep the law, you don't get grace. (laughs) If you keep it, then God gives you Unmerited pardon, as heard at Armstrong Divine Grace. It's pardon you don't deserve because you have sinned. But it comes as a gift through Christ's sacrifice so that your sin can be forgiven and you're under a, a state of pardon. And that's the state that we are in. We are not under condemnation. The rest of the world out there is under judgment under the Old Testament of the, of the, uh, letter of the law. And all this trouble that's coming in the seven last plagues will be a judgment based on the letter of the Old Testament. We have been given the spirit of the New Testament and given pardon that we do not deserve through Christ whose sacrifice now is there for us. It's not there for the rest of the world. Now, all these so-called Christians think that they have the blood of Christ Shed for them. Well, in one sense, that's true, but only in their order of resurrection, millennium, or great white zone judgment. It is not there for them now. They have not been given the new covenant. Only those called out and given the truth, who worship in spirit and in truth, receive the Holy Spirit. And none of those people out there have the truth. They just don't have it. Therefore, they don't have the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine? Can you comprehend how blessed we are that we've been given the opportunity to have the Spirit of God and through obedience and walking in the Spirit we can be the very bride of Christ as fruits. We have pardon we do not deserve. The world has no pardon. There's no pardon there even though they think they're saved. They're not saved from the trouble at the end, are they? They're not saved from the seven last plagues, are they? Nearly all of them are going to die, aren't they? Yes, and they'll come up in the second resurrection. That's when the sacrifice of Christ will apply for them, because they're living right now in the sixth day. And that wave sheet covers the sixth day over a period of years. So this is talking to the church. The whole Bible is written to the call of God. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Not everybody out there that calls on the name of God and gives lip service, but to us, who's he talking to? Roman Christians who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, and including all who were part of the true church of God at that time, wherever they might have been, but he was writing specifically to the Romans. However, God did not limit it to the Romans. He put it in the Bible for you and me now. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. But they are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. We have been given the Spirit of God We are told to walk in the Spirit. So our mind should be on spiritual things more than on the things of the flesh that are all around us. People out here in the world can only think in fleshly terms. They don't understand spiritual terms. They can talk about spirituality, but they don't really understand what it's all about. They mind the things of the flesh. For to be carnally, that is, normally... Humanly, carone in Spanish is meat, meaty, fleshly. Carnal mind is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Now there's a good incentive to walk after the things of the Spirit. They lead to life and peace. Because the carnal mind, the normal, everyday mind that Jeremiah talks about as being deceitful and desperately wicked, anybody on the street wherever they are, their mind is enmity against God. And if you understand and have the Spirit of God and try to talk to them about truth and the real workings of the Spirit of God, they get upset. They don't want to hear it. They reject it. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Now, we've gotten frustrated when we tried to convince others, our friends, our relatives, even church members who don't know what we know or don't agree with us, and you try to talk to them. No way. Don't want to hear that stuff. Not going to listen. It cannot respond to God. Neither indeed be can be subject to God. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But you, speaking to us, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now we were baptized, had the laying on of hands, we were conceived of the Spirit, therefore it dwells in us. So we are after the Spirit, not the flesh. The flesh just intrudes is the problem. It's still after us. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Now, that tells you right there that all so-called Christians are not his, because they do not have the truth. They don't have the Sabbath. They don't have the Holy Days. They don't understand that we're to become God. They don't have the basic truths of the Bible. They have maybe the book of Galatians. That's about it, parts of it, where it says you don't. They think you don't have to keep the law and all you need is grace. So they don't—they just don't know the book. They don't know the Bible. They don't know the truth. And so they're, therefore, not his. They're just physical people who will one time become his when their time comes. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. We're dead to sin. We're not supposed to sin anymore because Christ lives in us and he's not a sinner. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If He lives His life in us, then His righteousness becomes our righteousness. Our own righteousness, or our trying to keep the law, or trying to do good, is self-righteousness. That's all the world has, is self-righteousness. And it seems good, You can go to the Methodists or the Baptists or some of the Mormons or wherever you want to go, and you can find nice, kind people who want to serve and want to help, and they speak of love, and they're kind to their neighbors, and they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. They don't have any knowledge of the truth of God, and therefore they do not have the Spirit of God because He doesn't give it to them. He gives His Spirit to them that obey. And they say the law is done away with. You don't have to obey. Therefore, they don't have God's spirit. It's easy to be fine. And even demons can be transformed as angels of life. They can seem like. They can seem so sweet, so kind, so nice. But those are demons that are over those churches. And some of them are nice demons. Kindly personalities, if you will. I've met really mean, bitter ones. I've met angry ones. I've met kind, sweet ones. Now, it's a farce, but it's the way they come across. Because they have hate in their heart. And they're trying to lead those people by appearing righteous away from God and to death. If Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. And the Spirit is life due to His righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Emmanuel from the dead dwell in you... He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. We don't owe this flesh anything. Why should we walk after it? Who do we owe a great debt to? He who died for us, redeemed us as our Savior. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the Spirit... Do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. You have to have the Holy Spirit of God. Mortify means mortality, means kill. You kill the deeds of the body. (coughs) That's what overcoming is. It's killing that which takes us away from God. And our flesh yearns to go the wrong way. Always wants to sin. Always wants to be selfish. Always wants its way. for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Now, the, the beginning of wisdom is to fear God. But to have that kind of great respect for Him and honor and glory and sovereignty that we give to him in our hearts and minds and prayers is different than the fear religion that some teach that God's going to get you for that. We should not be living in a fearful state. An orphan, put in an orphanage, lives in fear. And if he's moved over and over by a child's quote-unquote, protective services from family to family, orphanage to orphanage. He is insecure. He is fearful. He is scared. He doesn't know what he's going to run into next. This one beat me. This one abused me. This one wouldn't feed me. This one cussed at me. His life is a state of fear. Now, We are not to be under that kind of fear of bondage, because a child in that condition basically is a slave to whoever he's turned over to, and you never know. Now, there are some nice people out there who adopt kids and give them a pretty decent life, but that isn't necessarily the norm. There are a lot of people who are it just for the money. And they keep taking in kids, 5, 6, 7, 8, 10, 12, because the more kids they got, the more money they get. So it's that kind of bondage that he's talking about, or you could even say to physical slavery. When you're a slave, you do what you're told. When you're told, uh, you're a slave when you're in prison. You get up when you're told to, you lay down when you're told to, you exercise when you're told to, and so on and so forth. And you have no choices, no options. You do what you're told. So that's the way we were with this world. We were going along doing its thing in slavery to Satan's system, and it was leading to death. It's a scary thing. But you've received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Now, here, God has adopted us. He's seen us out here as refugees in this world, Satan's world, headed for death. And he looked down and he said, I want that one. With my spirit, I'll open his mind and I'll show him the truth. And as he responds and he turns to me and begins to want to be my son, I will become his father. And I will love him with all my heart. That's the way God looks at you and me. He loves us with all His heart. He expects that of us. We love Him with all our heart. He's not asking us to do anything but what He does for us. He'll do anything for us as long as it's lawful and legal and something within His will. Christ even told us, anything you ask, According to my will, I will do it. We have to have faith. We have to be doing our part. But he's bound by his words. And we can cry to him as our father. So we don't need to live in the spirit of fear, prison, bondage, but in the spirit of feeling loved and wanted and needed by God. Do we grasp that? That he wants us. He needs us. He loves us. It is His good pleasure to give us the kingdom. Does it make you joyful sometimes to give someone something? Someone you love and you give them something that you think that they're going to appreciate and like and maybe give you a big smile and hug and kiss and say how much they love you? It's what God is. He wants with all His heart to give us the first fruits, His kingdom. That's what it's all about. That's what He cares about. That we look at it that way? I've been trying to do that more and more. That's what the whole series in the Passover was about. And here it is again. We're adopted. He wanted us. He took us in. He gave us His name. We're the children of God. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. How do you feel about your children? You love them. You want to do anything you can for them to make them happy, to make their lives fulfilled, to make their lives successful. Now we look at all our kids out there and we say, Oh man, what a mess. But that's not what we want for them. We don't want for them what they're doing and how they're cutting off their nose to smite their face, Spite their face. We don't want that for them. It's where they are, but it's not our feeling toward them. And God looked at us out there doing the same thing our kids, some of them, are doing. And he says, no, I love them. I want that one here. I want to adopt that one. I want that one in my family. That's my child. I love it. We need to come to view God that way. Sitting on the knee of our Father and Him banding us in love. We are His children. And if children, then heirs. Whatever there is to inherit, if we're His kids, about it or not, we get the full inheritance. Heirs of God. Now, my aunt just died at age 103, I think my sister said. might have been 104. And she was holding up the inheritance of all the cousins. Last sibling out of eight to die. Oh, that lady wouldn't die. <laughs> Not that by the time it's all split up and the lawyers get their share, that there'll be anything much left. Like my sister joked, maybe we'll get our $500 bill. But uh, there was at one time, and still is a fairly sizable thing there, if you don't split it 30 ways. Uh, and then with the lawyers as well. I think I mentioned that the other day. But, you know, that's a little inheritance from my grandfather and my grandmother, still not yet received, two generations down the road because of the way they set it up. Most of the cousins are too old to enjoy Well, they we might get a teeth fixed or something. Who knows? But that's just a physical inheritance. Here were the heirs of God What does God have? Just the universe. (laughs) Just everything in it. Just eternal life. Just peace and happiness with no tears, no pain, no sorrow, no death. Nothing bad ever to happen again. And we're heirs of that. We will inherit that. It's ours to have. And joint heirs with Christ. He's sitting on his throne beside his Father over the universe. And we're heirs with him. Whatever he's received, we will also receive. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. How do you suffer with Christ? How do you suffer with him? says you've got to do it. Well, what did he suffer? When he was here on this earth, he suffered temptation. He was tempted in all points, like we are. And he learned by the things that he suffered. So he suffered ridicule. He suffered threats on his life. He suffered the temptations to sin. Now, he was a young, virile, strong Red blooded American, if you will. There is no temptation that has ever come to you guys or gals that he didn't have. None. And he never gave in to any of them. Not once. Now we have to suffer with him in order to receive the inheritance that he received. So what does he say? Overcome your temptations. Overcome your sins. To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne. We don't have to have been sinless through our lives. He was, but we don't have to be. He had to be so his life was worth more than our sinful lives. So we've sinned, and his life is big enough to cover our sins and wash them out. And we have no right to bring up each other's sins because they come under the blood of Christ. And we're going against the word of God when we accuse each other of sin. We become satanic. That's not the way Christ is. So we have to suffer with him. Suffer the same temptations. Suffer the same trials and difficulties and overcome them. So we have to live... He was a man of sorrows. He wasn't a happy-go-lucky party guy. He saw a lot of pain and suffering around him and he suffered with it. And we are to be serious and sober minded, redeeming the time and overcoming and growing when we suffer temptation, trials, troubles, and difficulties. Even the pain that we've suffered of having to wait all these decades for these things to happen. That's a trial and a tribulation and it wears on our patience. It wears on our ability to endure to the end. Whatever it takes, we have to suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So, what do people do? They tend to to dwell on their problems, their troubles, their poor pitiful me's. Oh, woe is me. I have this problem. I have that problem. Oh, my. I'm so discouraged. I'm so down. I'm so frustrated. Their minds on themselves. Poor pitiful me is selfishness. That's all it is. What can you be doing for somebody else? The sufferings we have... Are not even, shouldn't even be on the table by comparison to what we have ahead. So where should our mind be? On poor little me or on where I'm headed? That's where our minds have to be. Are you ever going to reach a goal if you don't have your eye on it? Yeah, I used to play basketball. And if I didn't have my eye on that rim, I was very rarely going to make a basket. I tried a few times standing at the free-throw line and turning my back to the goal and throwing the ball over my head and trying to make a basket. You understand just about how successful that was. If you got your back to the goal looking at something else, you're not going to get to your goal. That's what he's saying here. For the earnest expectation of... I marked that out and put another word in there. Now I can't read it. I'm getting old. Uh, the earnest expectation waits for the manifestation of the sons of God of the creation, for the creation was made subject to vanity, vanity, not willingly, but by reason of Him who has subjected the same in hope. We have this expectation, this understanding of where we're headed. But we were made subject to vanity and selfishness, and we have to overcome it. Because the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. See, our life here as an adopted child is a type of what we shall be as a full, immortal, eternal Son of God. This life is a picture of that, and it is a woeful one, (laughs) because we are so far from what we need to be and what he wants us to be. So we have our human minds and Satan pulling at us at all times, subject to vanity and selfishness, minds on ourselves. Because the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty. See, the feeling of not being an orphan anymore, that's what I was trying to get at here. Then we're an adopted son, and the liberty that comes with that of feeling secure and safe in that I am now a son, not just an orphan out there trying to fend for myself. But God is there to give me the glorious liberty. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. And if it was travailing in pain then, it's travailing even more now. Even the very elements that we have polluted are turning on us. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption that is the redemption of our body. To when we're not just symbolically adopted now, but our body is changed, and the adopted child goes from being a conceived fetus, if you will, born into the kingdom of God as a full son. Yeah, he's adopted us, but we're not born yet. Just as I used to feel mommy's tummy and feel my baby. I hadn't seen it yet. It wasn't breathing and screaming yet, but it was kicking and wanting out. But that was my baby. (laughs) That's the way God looks at us. I want to hold my baby. I want it to be born into my kingdom. Full adoption. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man sees, why does he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. We can see it in our mind's eye, we know it has to come, and we are the firstfruits of the Spirit. Likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. Do you feel that way sometimes? I don't even know what to say, Father. I feel like such a wretch. I feel so frustrated with myself, with things... What do I say? But the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So it isn't just us praying, but the Spirit of God is pulling for us. It's bringing us on. It's helping us. It's strengthening us. And sometimes when you don't know what to say in prayer and you stay at it, then the communication, the connection is made. And then instead of just mouthing words, you actually have this feeling through the Spirit of God that you're actually connected and He's hearing you. And that's a wonderful feeling in prayer when that happens. Just mouthing words by rote, bless so-and-so, help so-and-so, heal so-and-so, there's no real connection there. But when the connection is made, Then you feel and you know that God is hearing what you're saying. And sometimes that's hard to find. It's hard to grab. It's hard to get. So we have to work at it, knowing that the Spirit is there pulling for us. And he that searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know not all, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God to them who are called according to His purpose. Even the things that seem bad work together for good. Because a trial, a trouble, a tribulation, a test that we pass, strengthens us. That which doesn't kill us makes us stronger, as they say. Verse 31, What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? We need to be sure that we are close to God and we look upon Him as our Father and look to Him for the answers. And He sacrificed Christ for us. And since Christ died for us, He has a great deal of emotional investment in you and me. Remember how He sweat blood before He went on that stake to die? And how He had an impassioned Prevailing emotional prayer, and then how he thought when he was on the stake dying about what he was doing and who he was doing it for. And he says, I don't know whether I can handle this, Father. Nevertheless, not my will be done because this is for all those people. He made a tremendous investment in you and me. All right, then consider that verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Paul's naming all the horrible things he could think of here. What's going to separate us from the commitment that Christ made in us? Giving up the universe and coming and living on this earth? Is a human being with body odor? He was a human. And tempted in every point, like as we are. Look at what he gave up. <laughs> and then it makes it almost laughable when Satan took him up after he fasted 40 days and Satan says, oh, I'll give you all these countries down here, all these nations. I'll give them to you. Big deal. He's just given up the whole universe. That's all. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Look at Hebrews 11 and what he said some of those people went through. Sawed asunder, hanged, stoned, on and on. We've not been there yet. For I am persuaded Paul was persuaded, he was of the mind, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things here now, or things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Emmanuel the Christ, our Lord. He invested so much in us, and so did the Father. And they are not about to give up their love for us. Now, we need to respond to that by being proper first fruits, by removing the blemishes so that we be not with spot or blemish before Christ, as I think it was James said, or was it Peter? Without spot or blemish presented to him as pure virgins for Christ to marry. That's what first fruits are all about. He says, put on your clean white garments. There's 144,000. It's limited to that. You're it. Now clean yourself up and make yourself ready as an acceptable bride for Christ because there's only 144,000 first fruits. And the first fruit is the apple of his eye. Paul's a that in Zechariah 2 and other places. The ball's in our court. He's going to love us no matter what. He's already committed himself to that. I love you until death do us part. Why will you die, O Israel? Why would you die? Why not live? And then his love will never part from us. If we don't do our part, we go on the third resurrection, we die and we're parted from him. Physical marriage is a direct type the spiritual marriage it either works or it doesn't work and we're given the opportunity to make it work and may death never part us eternally from Christ Because he said I'm not giving up no matter what I'm not giving up can we respond to that and be a first fruit in the first resurrection that's what this day is all about